This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, for a long time, therapy has gotten a bad rap and has just kind of been frowned upon in general society as a weakness or something like that. But in my experience, I, I look at it the complete opposite way. It's something that I have leaned on many times throughout my life and I think if you start looking at it through a different lens as in like a physical injury um, the mind plays a big part into who we are and how we get by in the world and without a healthy mind being truly happy and at peace is hard the good news is that therapy works but what is therapy exactly Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help, or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of these normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy, and now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you. BetterHelp is customized online therapy, and it offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start chatting with a therapist in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is all about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And now a special offer to SongFacts podcast listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash songfacts. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash songfacts. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the show. Hello and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan, and thank you so much for being here. I really hope you're having a great day. As always, this podcast is proudly a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, and if you're feeling up to it, go ahead, leave us a nice five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. It really goes a long ways. So... The Rolling Stones turned 60 this year, if you can believe that. So today, we are speaking with author Leslie Ann Jones about her new book, The Stone Age, 60 Years of the Rolling Stones. We talk about a few songs, we clear up some of Keith Richards' most insane rumors, and we go deep into the chaos surrounding the making of Exile on Main Street. Leslie's knowledge and in-depth research is remarkable, And we test that today by giving a wide account of the life and career of one of the most influential and long-standing bands our world has ever seen. I'll give you a hint. It's not all as glorious as one might think. I truly enjoyed this interview and have been enjoying the book as well. So please welcome Leslie Ann Jones. Don't question why she needs to be so free. She'll tell you it's the only way to be. She just can't be changed to a life where nothing's gained. So... You've been nice enough to be able to send me a version of this book, uh, The Stone Age, 60 Years of the Rolling Stones. 
It is currently July 28th. This book is going to come out next week to the public. Is that right? Yeah. Well, August the 2nd in the United States. Yeah. What a buildup. How long yeah. has this been a project for you? Long, long time. Uh, I've been thinking about it forever, really. I think I always thought that one day I would write a book about the stones. It was just one of those nebulous things in the future that I would have to build up to because it's such a big subject. And I had such ambivalent feelings about them. I've always loved the music, but I have not always loved the behavior, the way they've treated people, the mm -hmm. fallout of their lives, the victims. I've known some of them and I've known women and children of theirs as well. And, and also other people who've been used and abused by them. And that doesn't seem to have been uh, an exemplary human rights record among this band. And I think I, I probably thought for the longest time that it was too big a subject for me. But then of course we grow older and more experienced and, and grow into ourselves as writers and become more courageous about tackling the big untackleable subjects. And I think I just reached a stage that happened to coincide with the forthcoming 60th anniversary, which we've now just yeah. had, which was the 12th of July, uh, 1962, was when they played their first ever gig as almost the classic lineup. They didn't yet have Charlie Watts on drums. They didn't yet have Bill Wyman on bass. But it was that core lineup of Nick, Keith, and Brian Jones yeah. that that played together with another drummer that night, another bassist that night. And that was, and they were called the Rolling Stones without the G on the end of Rolling. Yeah. And and that was the start of it all, really. And it was great because on the night of the 12th of July, just gone, uh, there's a club in London, famous, famous rock and roll club called The Hundred Club on Oxford Street where everybody's anybody has played. The Stones have played there lots of times. And we had a, a celebration to mark the 60th anniversary. And we had a tribute band called Not the Rolling Stones. who <laughs> was so brilliant. I'd, I'd never seen them before, but I'd heard a lot about them. And they're incredibly nice guys. And the Mick character especially is just, we did an interview for an Australian TV before this gig. And we were all on screen together. And, and I mean, even without the wig and the clothes and everything, he just looks like a young Mick Jagger. So that's insane. I know it really is. So I said to him, how come you got into this? And he laughed at me and he said, what, looking like this? As if to say, <laughs> what am I, I supposed possibly to do? <laughs> have done anything else. So I said, could you sing? And he said, no. So I said, what well, you had to oh. learn to sing because you look like that. And he said, exactly. Everywhere I went. People were stopping me and, and asking me, you know, are you related to Mick Jagger or whatever? And he said, in the end, it was a no brainer. I just had to go for it. Well, they were amazing, astonishingly good. And oh, that's great. To begin with, people sat there and they were, didn't quite know how to react. Within about three numbers, they were up on their feet, dancing and cheering. And lots of people said, actually, this is better than the real thing, which of course, yeah. in some ways, it's going to be because they are significantly younger than the actual Rolling Stones are now. 
True. Who are all pushing. They can bring energy. that. They can bring that. They can bring that energy a little bit better. But those guys still bring it. I haven't seen them in the last ten years, but I think I saw them in the late two thousands. Mm-hmm. And um, endlessly impressed with that. I'm. I just like. I'm so impressed that they can still just get up there and do it. And uh, and they have the want and the drive to do it. It's it's really incredible. Um, early on in this book, you have a great chapter on Brian Jones, mm-hmm. and I think it's. I've read Keith's biography. I've read another biography on the Stones, but I don't think I've seen this in depth about Brian Jones, especially with his childhood. And then there's insights on just possible character traits that could have developed. And you you say in there, and like the the people that you speak with are like, hey, this is all just like subjective. We don't know for sure because we didn't have enough time to see it. He's not alive now. Um, but I'm wondering through your research if there's anything that you found that you were surprised by his life. The more I dug into Brian's early life, and we have to remember he, he died at the age of 27. So he didn't have much of a life anyway. He, all of his life was his early life. Uh, yeah. And it was extinguished um, at a very early stage. And the more I discovered about him by talking to people who had known him and reading and then digging in and trying to find people who, who'd been around, you know, the more I found out, the less I was surprised by what happened. Mm. He was obviously a very fragile individual uh, with a dysfunctional home life, uh, which is the case with so many rock stars I have found over the years when writing about yeah. these people. There's always a major reason why they head for rock and roll. And it's usually dysfunction, it's usually abuse, it's usually a void, some massive void in them, which they are desperate to fill. And we know about voids. The more you try and fill a void, the less you're going to fill it. It's impossible to do. But Brian was damaged, incredibly damaged. And the main reason why was that his younger sister died when she was two years old. And... Nobody ever discussed it with him. The parents contained it. They kept it to themselves. They didn't share with him what had happened and why. And it was, she was there one day and the next day she went away and she wasn't there anymore. And he carried the burden of this. He believed that it was his fault in some way. And they were the dead spit of each other as well. So this little angelic blonde round-eyed child disappeared and he carried the guilt of that for the longest time so he went into himself and he wasn't loved you know nowadays we would nurture a bereaved child we would acknowledge first of all the bereavement of a child rather than say oh my goodness those parents those poor people they lost their child we would also embrace the rest of the family and say well they're not the only ones who lost that person these little kids lost their sibling as well. And, and there, there has never been very much research into bereaved children. Even now, there isn't an awful lot. But Brian needed that, and he wasn't offered that. And he went into himself. He became um, a very introspective child. And so music was the obvious release for him. Yep. And it turned out that he was gifted musically. He was one of those people... Very. 
who could pick up more or less any instrument and get a tune out of it, teach himself how to play it. He did have um, lessons at school and he did play in orchestras and that kind of thing, but he was better left to his own devices. Nobody was teaching guitar at school back then. Uh, that was something you learned by yourself. And he did learn it by himself. And he lived in a place called Cheltenham in Gloucestershire, which is on the, the circuit, on the jazz map. So musicians coming in from America, for example, they would do some gigs in London and then they would go outside of London and they would go on the tour and visit all the obvious places. Oh, okay. Where there were aficionados, where there were people who were, were jazz fans. And Cheltenham, where Brian lived, was one of the places on the map where visiting jazz musicians came. And there was quite a bit of a jazz scene. So he got himself involved with like-minded people and he would go to see musicians who, who came to town. And that really fueled his interest. He was able to park his void and park his negative feelings and pour all his emotions and needs, desires into music. Yeah, he was also. Um, how can I put this nicely? He was um, prolifically into women, and this is what caught my attention. Yeah. Was I was like, he had what's five known kids? Yeah, that we know of, and one all or by two by girls. seventeen, all by different girls. Yes, unbelievable. Um, all born while he was still a teenager, and he didn't stay with any of the mothers. And he didn't support them financially. He wasn't able to. He wasn't mm. yet in a position to do that. Yeah. And so he became a pariah in, in a small, well-heeled town. He was kind of lock up your daughter's material. You know, he was not somebody that good families wanted around, even yeah. though he came from a good family himself. So there were reasons to run this boy out of town and reasons for him to escape to London, which he did pretty soon and started turning up at the Ealing Jazz Club, which is a club in West London, which is still there, actually. And he would start to get involved with musicians and put feelers out because he, he wanted to form his own band and eventually collided with these two boys from Dartford, which is southeast London, a bit of a, a low-heeled place, really. Um, Mick and Keith, who'd known each other since they were five, They'd gone to the same infant school and then they separated for a while, went to different schools after that and then bumped into each other again on a railway station platform and they were carrying the same kinds of blues records. In those days, everybody <laughs> went around with their albums in a plastic carrier bag or under their arm and yeah, you yeah. could see what people had. So it was kind of a badge of honour, you know, to carry your albums. And even when I was a teenager further down the line, when we started having parties at, at friends' houses from the age of about 15, and you'd all go along with your albums. And whoever had the latest kind of Cat Stevens or Elton John or whatever it was, you know, this was this was a prize to be shared. You were the first one to have it. But it was the same thing for them with, with American blues records. Yep. So they found each other again. So you had these two factions, the Brian Jones faction and the Mick and Keith faction. And they came together, they converged, and eventually they formed a band together. But Brian was the essence of the early band. Brian was the official founder, and he named the band. 
it was only when their second manager, Andrew Lee Golden, decided that they had to stop doing covers of other people's music and they had to start writing their own songs. And the, the myth goes that he locked Mick and Keith in the kitchen and said, you're not coming out until you've written a song. <laughs> Whether it's true or not, we don't care because it's quite a good story. But yeah. at that point, Brian started to lose his power because Brian could not write. Brian could play anything, but he could not write a song to save his life. Amazing with accompaniment. Yeah, but neither could he sing. Mm. So he then is relegated to the back seat and it becomes Mick and Keith's band. Which at that point, it was a great big turning point because he could see his control slipping away. And yeah, he hit drugs, he hit booze, he started abusing girlfriends and and losing control to the point that he became a liability. But on the other hand, as Bill Wyman, their bassist at the time, turned around and said, well, Keith's taking more drugs than Brian. Keith's out of control way more than Brian. So there wasn't really justification to kick him out of the band, except when it came to returning to America to tour, and Brian had a drugs case hanging over his head. Couldn't come. Pending case, he wouldn't have been allowed in. Immigration would have turned him away. And at that point, the others turned around and said, well, we have to get rid of him. Yeah. I mean, do you think like that, 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 that transition to me from him being the leader, his band, his idea for what the band is going to be and all that kind of stuff, that to me is a very interesting point because it happened pretty early on in like 62, 63-ish mm-hmm. when Mick and Keith really started writing together. Mm-hmm. And then he's not kicked out of the band until what, like 67? a little bit later because he died in 69 so it was going off the rails by 67 but but their career was burgeoning at that stage and they were pouring through the albums pouring through the singles and the tours it was a relentless schedule so there wasn't really an opportunity to take a step back go on holiday sit around discuss the way this was evolving and Mm -hmm. decide you know because there was a rumor that Brian was planning to leave the Rolling Stones, but to mm-hmm. take the name with him and to launch a supergroup featuring uh, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, other musicians, and that he would have a Rolling Stones Mark II. And Mick and Keith were terrified that this was going to happen mm-hmm. because it would wipe out everything they'd achieved as the Rolling Stones. They would have had to start yeah. from scratch again. And the momentum that they had built up would have been lost. So they were desperate not to lose the name to Brian, who had come up with the name in the first place. Which I think yeah. led to some of the rumors that um, that they had Brian done in, as it were. Yeah, I mean, when you really dig into it, it, it like you said, like there were things that were preventative that were going on in Brian's life that would have slowed the band's momentum. And at, at, at those guys in their you know mid to late 20s weren't ready to do that and be like, well, how long until we can go back and tour America? So it's a hard decision. It's a business decision. It's But it's, you know, at a certain time, there's personal and business decisions that have to be made by any band or any family or anything like that. And you have to, they're not always going to be easy. So I think he's painted as a victim a lot of times, but, you know, he, he definitely 
impacted that decision on his own? It wasn't just like making Keith just being like, nope, you're out. It was ruthless the way it was handled. He needed help. And instead of just kicking him out, you know, somebody, not them, because they also were young and inexperienced, but somebody should have taken control and got Brian the professional help that he needed. And as I said, he wasn't the only one. Keith was out of his brains most of the time. The thing about Keith was that he was able to step up in the studio, even being out of his brains one second, you know, he could go into a studio and take two, whatever, and he would he would step up and be able to perform. Brian couldn't do that. He'd be slumped in a corner. And he, he was quite far gone at that stage. He, mm-hmm. he needed medical attention, and he didn't get it. I wish that there were doctors that could really study Keith, because after reading his biography, I'm like, how does that guy, how? Just how? <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, okay, I want to get into some of these amazing tunes, because... We get to a point where we have um, the album Beggar's Banquet. Yeah. And I've got a couple of questions about this one. Um, first of all, I just want to start off. This song, No Expectations, huge song in my life. Probably one of the first ones I ever learned to just strum on the guitar. What can you tell us about how this song came together? It's uh, it's one of the it's one of those interesting songs. This was a B side, wasn't it? This was the um, original B side of Street Fighting Man, the single. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, it's the album Beggar's Banquet, 1968. So still pretty early on. Not that we knew, or those who were around at the time knew that this was going to be early on in their career, because we had no idea of how long they were going to last. Yeah. But this is an early incarnation. Um, it's. A very blues-driven song, isn't it? I mean, it's it's got a sadness to it. It's, there's Definitely. an inevitability about this song. So you've got Mick with this very controlled vocal, a sort of very uh, accepting, I suppose is the word, a, a resigned. So there's a resigned note to Mick's voice in this song. Um, yeah. Keith's on acoustic guitar, and even that is very mournful. You know, you can make a, an acoustic very mournful, and he really does. He gets inside the guitar here. And the, the guitar, you know, it reminded me of um, Still My Guitar Gently Weeps. There's yeah. a, a guitar is crying in this track, and, and that is audible to me, the sadness. I agree um, You've got Nicky Hopkins, amazingly, on this track, the, the incredible pianist with the magical tinkling keys. Um, he worked with the Rolling Stones so much, Nicky Hopkins, and he was a prodigy. But he had an illness. He had Crohn's disease from a very young age, which meant that he wasn't able to go on the road. Uh, so even though he played on many, many Stones recordings, right up until, I think, Tattoo You, what was that, 1981, I think? Yeah. Um, 
he wasn't able to tour. He went out a, a couple of times, but he needed um, hospitalization quite often. He was, I think for about a year and a half, he was bedridden. So, you know, mm -hmm. even though he was um, a massive contribution to the Rolling Stones of, as it were, he, he wasn't able to tour with them. And they also had Ian Stewart, who was one of the original lineup, Stu, as they called yeah. him, who um, Andrew Lugoldham kicked out of the band because he said, you know, actually he's one too many. And also his face doesn't fit. It literally didn't fit. He was a great big roughly hewn Scott and he just didn't match the others visually, <laughs> which seems very harsh, but that's what happens. He was still around anyway. Yeah. Um, I don't know. This, this is Brian's song really, isn't it? You've got Brian, it's kind of Brian's last lament and he comes through loudly and clearly uh, with this beautiful slide guitar which once mm -hmm. it's pointed out to you, it's all you can hear, really. It's all I hear is, is Brian there. The ghostly remnants of Brian come back to life every time you hear this. And it is, it's strange because of that. You know, that's really interesting because the next song that I was going to ask you about, Midnight Rambler. That was one thing that I wanted to try and connect because we know of this fascination with blues, slide guitar, um, all these old blues artists that they all had, but you really get into that in the Brian Jones chapter. And I think of Midnight Rambler as a Brian Jones song, but I'm, I, you know, I'm almost positive he didn't have anything to do with it at that time. Like he was, was he dead at that time? So this, it's, he died 1969. This is from Let It Bleed, the album Let It Bleed. Uh, this is also a 1969 album. Yeah. So I think he's pretty much off the case by this time. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. It's got a Brian Jones feel about it. Um, this is the song that's about the Boston Strangler, which kids today would go, who the hell's the Boston Strangler? You know, this, <laughs> this means nothing to me. But it was a big story in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. This uh, There was a series of murders in Boston, Massachusetts, and it was said to be this prowler who came out at night and got into women's apartments. And the, the notion was that they were letting him in and he would then rape and strangle them. And so this song is, is about this character. Albert DeSalvo was his real name. Okay, so the lyrics of Midnight Rambler. Yep. They're fairly harmless, really. I, you've got, here we go, a verse. Did you hear about the Midnight Rambler? Well, honey, it's no rock and roll show. Well, I'm talking about the Midnight Rambler. Yeah, the one you never seen before. There's nothing offensive there. It's no. the theme. So you sing that today, and people are just going to go, this is a great song. You know, the Midnight Rambler, just some random guy that nobody knows it's about the Boston Strangler. Nobody remembers the Boston Strangler. So it's, it's interesting how... The controversy follows them around. Um, Jagger on harmonica on this is absolutely mind-blowing. So uh, good. Just just ridiculously brilliant. 
Um, we also need to go back. We said that Brian Jones wasn't on this, didn't we? Is he on it? Yeah, he is. He plays congas on it. Oh, really? Yeah. See, that's another, like, just a piece of this that he... Yeah. All these different things that he can bring in. I remember this quote, and I, I think you did a book on um, on John Lennon, too, as well, right? I did, yeah. Did he have a quote where he said that, I'm an artist. If you give me anything, I'll make art out of it. Like, that kind of thing. Like... Like he was just like someone asked him like can you play this instrument and he was like yeah I'm an artist if you give it to me I'll I'll figure it out mm-hmm. and I'll make art out of it mm-hmm. and that's what I think of when I think of Brian Jones I think I have a couple of friends like this that I've played music with in the past that I'm just like you can just sit down and just do that and like for me it would take months to do that and you can just figure out how to run a a scale or something like that it's just unbelievable to me when people yeah. have this brain that can do that kind of thing that's a natural musician isn't it. That's somebody for whom an instrument is an extension of their body. Yeah. Somebody who can um, who can pull music out like a language, which it is. And there's something in their brain that can process any input into musical output. I wish I knew what that was. Uh, hmm. I certainly don't have it myself, which is why I write about it. But um, <laughs> but, it, but it is a magical thing to to imagine, and even more magical to witness. Yeah, but yeah, Brian Brian plays um, plays congas on this. Obviously, you've got Charlie on drums. Um, they have actually often featured Midnight Rambler in their their live sets. Um, and yes, it has been criticised down the years for celebrating violence uh, and acting out a, a rape murder and so on. Uh, and I think the wider implication is that women's sexuality is under the control of men, which wasn't being mm-hmm. challenged in the 1970s, but it's certainly being challenged today. So, yeah. so maybe this song, this song has lost its relevance to some extent, but it's still a great rock track. It's still a wonderful piece of performance in which they lose themselves. And it's, it's a sight to behold, the Stones playing this. Yeah. I mean, for me, and you know, I I was born in '82, so mm-hmm. I've I, the Stones. I mean, my parents were huge Stones fans. I've been listening to it my entire life. But when I hear this song, it has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with um, just thinking about a band in the studio between midnight and six a.m. trying to put something together. Because when I think of blues music, that's where I go. Is just like a smoky a low lit room with like smoke smoky haze and things like that so it brings me there and then the dynamics of it the stops and all that kind of stuff where it's just um it that that kind of stuff has always pulled me in and i think the the slide guitar and everything that's involved with this song that's in a blues manner to me just makes me feel like this is them like kind of paying homage or trying to be like an old Muddy Waters or things like that from the 1950s when they were walking around with all those albums. Oh, yeah. it's um, There's a flow to this. There's an electricity to this track. And it's it's there's dirt to it. There's sex to it. There's It's just everything about being rock and roll is, is in this. It's all there. It's just, it's fizzing out. It's like, it's like shaking a bottle of champagne and then opening it. It all yeah. comes out, all of their influences, all of their energy, 
all of their inspiration and all of their talent as well. It's all here. And you can't sit still listening to this. You've got to get up and dance. And uh, I, there is that, there's a famous bit of footage of Mick performing, or the whole band performing. I'll say that again. There's a famous bit of footage of the band performing this. Uh, trying to remember where it was. Um, we'll pause there while I try and find out. Can't remember. Uh, okay. Um, the live take uh, on the album Get Your Yaya's Out. Okay. Have you heard that? The, the light, the oh, live. I've, I've heard it. I don't think I've seen it, uh, but I've heard it. No, no, no. Um, 1970, uh, which is a fantastic rendition of this, a, a really true showcasing of what I think they were driving at when they came up with this song. Stay tuned for more Song Facts podcast right after this. I'm wondering what you think of um, the album Beggar's Banquet as a whole, kind of jumping around a little bit here on you, mm. but I'm, to me, and maybe I've, I read this somewhere along the way, but somewhere in my brain is imprinted that they mellowed out and went with this like softer acoustic album. I think they recorded it in Brazil too, um, where they were heavily influenced by what Dylan was doing at the time and what the band came out when they released Big Pink and how that was really stripped down. Um, and I'm wondering if through your research you discovered anything like that or if I am just making things up. <laughs> it's one of those albums. That <laughs> it doesn't speak to me. It's, it's very interesting, apart from a handful of singles. The mm-hmm. Stones albums don't speak to me until Exile on Main Street which is where okay. I came in. And I think I got so deeply immersed in that album, not at the time, but a bit later down the line, because I was just too young to get it in real time. So when I got to it, I was so enthralled by Exile on Main Street that I was dismissive of everything that came before, apart from the hit singles, which kind of pervaded the charts and, uh, and excited everybody, didn't they? But again, not in real time, not for me. I'm the person who discovered the Beatles backwards because I was too young when they were out there doing it. So I, I came in at wings and worked my way back, you know. It's, That's and so often, funny. That's a good way to put it, though. I discovered them backwards. Yeah, I did. And, and I often wondered what it would have been like to be that bit older and to have been immersed in the, the explosion of these two bands um, and the rivalry that was built up to such a degree in the music press, uh, mm-hmm. even though they were friends and even though they, the Beatles were giving them songs in the first place. And, yeah. and you know, that rivalry to this day is, is magnified and, and exploited, let's say. And, and the press especially are taunting them all the time. And Mick is encouraged to say stuff like, well, yeah, McCartney can say what he likes, but you know, where are the Beatles? They haven't been out there since 1970. We're still out there doing it. But that's mm-hmm. overlooking the fact that McCartney tours the world every two years and, and will exactly. until he drops down dead. So effectively, it's the Beatles. If you think about it, we have only two-fifths of the Rolling Stones. So that's not technically the Rolling Stones. We also, that's true. We have half the Beatles. We have Paul and Ringo. They don't go out as the Beatles because it wouldn't be the Beatles without John Lennon. 
But you have to say, yeah. are the Rolling Stones the Rolling Stones without Brian Jones? It's true. On the I mean, yeah, on the 3rd of July in London, they performed, and that was Brian's 53rd anniversary of his death. There was not, there was not a mention. They did not say anything. They include a lot of tributes to Charlie Watts in their current show and yeah. how much they miss him and, and all of this. But there wasn't even a nod to Brian Jones. And I was very disappointed by that. What do you think you attribute that to? Do you think that there's just, do you think it's time and that just that, that light has dimmed so much that they don't feel a need to like try and rekindle it? Or do you think it's deeper than that? Do you think that there's underlying emotions that they just can't get rid of? Yes, I think there's guilt. I think as they've okay, grown older okay. at the time when they were only young men in their 20s and they were drugged up to their eyeballs the entire time and they were young guys and scared probably and trying to figure things out and probably weren't, they probably couldn't, they weren't capable of thinking too deeply about what was going on around them. But as they've grown older and they've had more and more children and they've had grandchildren, they've had great grandchildren and they've become elder statesmen now and they've got a long, long life, collective and personal life to look back on and to think, okay, that happened. And maybe that was our fault in some way. Maybe we should have done something to help Brian. And maybe we are responsible. But they don't want to think about that because if you take on board that kind of guilt, that means you've got to do something about it. They're never going to come out and say, actually, Brian died because of us. They're not, yeah, going, to, they're not going to say that. So it's easier for them to ignore it and pretend that they were nothing to do with it. And also to have let Brian go. You know, Nick and Keith didn't even go to Brian's funeral. Yeah, I remember reading that. It's pretty shameful, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's. it's so hard, right? Because if they're carrying that, you hate to think of anybody carrying that kind of burden around with them and possibly just going to go to the grave with it. But um, maybe it's just too hard and too big and there's too much there for them to want to go and try and unpack knowing that they're at the, you know, the, they're on the... 18th green of their life uh, well yeah yeah 19th 19th hole is the pub isn't it probably i mean <laughs> i think keith's <laughs> like keith, keith just keeps playing he's he's long out of holes it's very um, interesting he does always say <laughs> i love this phrase i will drop down dead live on stage which is a great paradox isn't it i yeah. i just so want to be there when that happens not in a macabre way not because I'm a ghoul or anything. I just want to be there. It's it's a part of history. Keith Richards has to die with his boots on. He has to die live on stage. That's and true. I just want to be there when that happens. It's, it's what he would want, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm not saying I Do want him think... to die, but I hope I hope I'm I'm around to witness that. Yeah. You know, if you're gambling on the over under and when he's gonna go, like you you got to take the over every time. Yeah. You know, there used to there was a rumor kicked around for years that was uh, greatly disputed, and he denied it. And it was that he used to go to Switzerland to a clinic to have his blood changed because he would be so immersed in heroin and whatever else that he would he was going to die if he kept this stuff in his system. Had to clean up, yeah. so he'd go to this clinic, and they would drain his blood and replace. Now, a blood transfusion is not that unusual a thing. You know, this happens routinely in surgery. 
And it turned out to be true. As I interviewed a guy called David Ambrose, he used to be head of A&R at EMI. And uh, we, we were chatting about this. I said, do you reckon there was any truth in that? He said, I know that there is. I say, how come? He says, it wasn't Switzerland. It was London. There was a clinic in Seymour Place, which is near Baker Street, where Madame Tussauds is, the wax works. And uh-huh. he says, uh, I used to go to this clinic on a regular basis to have the same treatment. And I would sit oh in the gosh. waiting room and Keith Richards would be sitting next to me seeing the same doctor. And he said, I know that he was doing this for a fact. So Keith can deny it as much as he likes, but there were witnesses. The other great one was, you know, the story about after his dad, Bert, died. And this was all over the papers at the time that he smoked his father's ashes. I remember reading that. And then Keith sort of explains it in live, his, his autobiography. And first of all, he denied it massively. And said, no, how disgusting. What a terrible story. And of course I didn't know. It's a joke. But then in the book, he explains, well, actually, he was burying the ashes. He had arranged to bury the ashes. And there was the planting of an oak tree and all of this. And he wanted to to sort of uh, breathe new life into his father through. A lot of people do this here. I don't know whether it's common in the States, but they plant trees and plant the ashes and and the tree will grow, and that's a monument to the person. Now, I'm a big fan of this, but it isn't yeah. something that happened. We did that with my, uh, or I did that with the section of my mom's ashes. Okay, okay. So he's doing this with his dad, and he says, the ashes are on the table, and he's taken the top off, and there's suddenly a huge gust of wind. And some of the ashes come out of the, the urn, and they go onto the table. So he said, I did what anybody else would have done. I just kind of licked my finger and wiped them up and consumed them. <laughs> I love it. And this becomes Keith Richards smoked his father. The idea being that he would have put the ashes into a spliff and, and then just kind of smoked him away, which it's, it's rock and roll, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it has to be. How upsetting is that really going to be to anybody? Not really. Yeah, exactly. Not really. And it's Keith, you know, so hmm. anything that comes out with him publicly somehow has to be aligned with drugs and alcohol. Yeah, anything goes. Um, okay, we got one more song to chat about, and we were kind of touching on it a little bit earlier, but through the me- beauty of editing, we may yeah. or may not know yeah, about yeah, that yeah. at this point. <laughs> yeah, but um, try and get it so, right this time. And obviously, I assume, because this was the album that brought you in, and this is the... Um, the time that I think is just so amazing for this band because of so many different factors going on. But Ventilator Blues. of Exile on Main Street. Why is this song unique on this album? Well, it's it's so infused with Muddy Waters and, and Howling Wolf. It's It's got the majesty of Mick Taylor, who contributed to, to this song. He created the riff, and it, quite rarely he's credited as co-writer of the song. Yeah. Um, though he never got the money, mind you. And this is a beef of his all these years later, that uh, because he lost his marbles a bit at the time and... Um, 
and he was never remunerated uh, as he should have been. Because Mick and Keith just took it on pretty much everything, right? They just put Jagger Richards over pretty much every song that was written at that point. Exactly. But um, yeah, this. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on here. So you've got Keith on slide guitar here because obviously Brian's no longer with them. Um, uh, mixed vocal is is double tracked, which is quite rare for a Rolling Stones recording. Uh, you got Nicky Hopkins again on the Lightning Trills. Um, Bobby Keys came up with this weird rhythm, which Charlie Watts had to learn by having Bobby clap it for him. And that hmm. was also a rare thing for Charlie as well, because he was such a natural drummer that it's yeah. it's quite quite rare for him to not get the rhythm and have to have somebody else pace him through it. Um, the thing about this song, it, it, it's it's very heavy. It's got a seductive drama to it. It's quite draining to listen to, but it's very Moorish. And it's quite different in flavor from the rest of the album. If you compare it, for example, to Tumbling Dice, which is a very light, bouncy, uh, laid back, um, resigned kind of a song really yeah this this gets under your skin this gets into your blood and it's you don't want to listen to this all the time because it will bring you down this is an enervating track but it's an important track because it shows the stones in a light that does link them directly back to their original influences and inspirations mm-hmm if that makes sense. What do we think about the title? Like, where do you think that title comes from? It's a funny word, isn't it? I, yeah, I wrote down some of the lyrics because I was, you want to, you want to sort of think, what, what is a ventilator? I have a theory about this. So you take this little bit when your spine is cracking and your hands, they shake, heart is bursting and your butt's going to break. Woman's cussing. You can hear her scream. Feel like murder in the first degree. Ain't nobody slowing down. No way. Everybody's stepping on their accelerator. Don't matter where you are. Everybody's going to need a ventilator. Hmm. I think the inspiration of this came from the dungeons in Villa Nelcott in Villefranche, where they were at the time. Uh, Keith had rented this house. There were all kinds of rumors about it. it was a Nazi headquarters during the second world war yeah yeah it wasn't it was it was not uh the timing was out on that whole thing um but in the dungeon it had sort of air vents like what we call air bricks uh in the walls and i suppose as a ventilation an early ventilation kind of facility Mm -hmm. to allow air to escape because otherwise the heat was brutal in that underfloor space and the walls are very thick uh, and the, and it was airless. The air wasn't circulating. So everybody's down there in next to no clothing, sweating their way through these recording sessions. And it was a den of iniquity. Literally everything was going on down there. And I think yep. I think the word ventilator might have been inspired by these holes in the wall. I kind of think that too, because my thought on that was, I think when you research this album and the making of this album enough, you you obviously you're drawn to this home, this massive home in the south of France. And your 
if you've dug into it the way that you obviously have and that I have to a certain extent, you can start to put a little bit of a roadmap together of like a floor plan almost of what this home looked like. And that's what I that's what I think of because they th- they're like when we're recording these songs, we are locked into this room. There is no ventilation. And that's what I was just like thinking is that maybe they just threw a name up there and stuck it on the wall because they were like, God, what if we could vent out some of the cigarette smoke yeah. or whatever the hell else is going on down there? Yeah. But I find that really interesting that there's, I think that that might have to do with it too. There's something to, attributed to that home. Apparently there were, um, I never went there. Obviously I would have loved to go there. Oh boy, I would have loved to go there. Is, there, is it still standing? Yeah, but you can't get near it. And I've been, ah. I've been down. It's, it's privately owned now. You've tried. Yeah, I really have, because <laughs> I would, you know, but uh, you can't get close. Um, it's behind very high kind of uh, fences and gates, and you can't even see in anymore. But Villefranche, which is the little seaside place that it sits above, is still very much as it was during those days. Uh, just a little, it started out a little fishing village. It's developed a bit. It's a bit of a resort now. But um, Keith kept a, uh, a speedboat down in the harbor called Mandrex, which tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it, really? And he had fast cars down there. They used to tear around town and terrorize all the little black clad widows in the town, screeching around in, in sports cars and so on. I mean, imagine being those local people. And suddenly these rock and roll terrorists move in and sort yeah. of take over. But going back to the house, I've read that the basement was divided into lots of little spaces. There are lots of little cubby holes, which kind of lent itself quite well to the recording process. Because mm-hmm. you could put your keyboard player in here, you could put your drummer there, you could put your sax player in there, uh, guitars over here, you know, and separate everybody out. And of yep. course, they were recording on what they called the mobile, which was their mobile recording truck, which was a rarity at that time. People didn't have mm-hmm. these kind of things. A few bands did also borrow it from them over the years and used it too. But they had it parked outside on the driveway. And the album was being recorded through this truck, into this truck. Um, and all hell broke loose in that place. I mean, the stories. Uh, I knew a chef, I knew a guy called Gérard Monsignac, who came in as one of the chefs at Villanelle Court. And he said, you know, on any given day, there'd be Yoko Ono wandering up and down staircases, completely nude. There'd be kids wandering around who weren't potty trained, who were just (laughs) dropping their doings all over the place. And somebody was running along behind them, scooping it off. But most of the time... People were completely out of it. There were more than 20 people there at any given time. They all needed feeding at ridiculous hours of day and night. Because as you point out, they their preferred recording uh, routine is, is to record through the night. Yeah, Recording through the night, you're going to need feeding. So you've got these twilight chefs who are having to produce banquets at no notice. <laughs> Where are they going to get the food? You know, they're always trying to anticipate what people might ask for, and they've got to go shopping at some point to actually get the food. So it sounds like it was complete debauchery. But there's yeah, something fascinating about that. Given the fact that I mean, they were literally living in exile, they'd had to leave the UK because yeah. the rate of taxation had gone through the roof, and they found that um, 
because of management crises and so on that they had been working their asses off for the past however many years, but they didn't actually have any money. Yeah. And if they stayed, Her Majesty's government was going to take the rest of their money off them, so they had to leave. Then you had Mick Jagger was married, just recently married to Bianca, his his wife, uh, living in Paris because she refused to live down in the south of France with all this going on. She was uh, a, a very soigné, sophisticated person who was not going to put up with all this. So Nick was having to commute from Paris, which is a distance, and that puts him out of the frame. And then Bill Wyman's rented a villa somewhere else along the coast, and and this den of iniquity is the sort of um, party central, or debauchery central. And... Um, and then with Bianca back in Paris, Mick has free reign and he's taking advantage of anything and anything that's coming through town. And he seduces Mick Taylor at the Villa Nelcourt. Mm. Mick Taylor has arrived with his partner, Rose, and then lovely new little baby. And Mick Jagger gets Mick Taylor drugged out of the eyeballs and he seduces him. And Mick Taylor never got over this. And he did subsequently marry Rose. And they tried very hard to make their family unit work. But he could not get his head around what happened because it was out of character for him. He didn't like the fact that he'd had a homosexual encounter yeah. with Mick Jagger, the king of the band. And he went a bit crazy in the end. And by, by 1975, he was out of the Rolling Stones. And never got over it. And and the relationship he was in didn't survive. And then he lost contact with his daughter. So, you know, there's all that fallout. And it's it's classic Rolling Stones fallout. Wherever they've gone throughout the last 60 years, they've wreaked havoc. They've destroyed lives. People's sanity has been threatened. People have died because of them. But they keep rolling on and people still revere them. And you can only say that it boils down to the music. Yeah. Of which I'm a massive fan. But I knew that I had to, to write the book that would put all of the wrongdoing in one place and to allow people to reevaluate them in light of what we know today in this post-Me Too, post-Times Up, post-Black Lives Matter era. Yeah. They look, actually, this happened and they did this and these people were affected. But they seem to have just sailed through everything and been the survivors. Now, does that make them the lucky ones? I guess we'll find out at some stage. Well, I mean, who, you know, it's an interesting question to bring up is like, why, why do they seem to be forgiven? Why do they they have all of this baggage with this 60-year career and it's just oftentimes completely forgotten and not thought about. But like you said, you think about the music, you think about the band. It's almost too big of a thing to wrap your head around all of that extra crap that they've got that they're responsible for. Um, and I'm just so thankful that you've taken the time to try and shine a little light on it because it's important to tell that side of the story because it's a big part of the story. It, of course it is. And I take something like Altamont, for example, 
December mm. 1969. People died yep. at Aldermont Speedway. People died because of the Rolling Stones. And the worst aspect about the murder of Meredith Hunter at the hands of a Hells Angel, Hells Angels were there doing security. I mean, who ever imagined that that could have gone well? Um, but this, this poor little black guy who's just a fan of the music, he's now with his girlfriend, he wants to experience the Rolling Stones, he's a big fan of, winds up dead. And what do the, the band do? They get in the helicopter and they fly away. Mm -hmm. Worse than that, they then later release a film which deploys footage of Meredith Hunter's murder. And not only that, but they feature it twice in the film, which makes that film as good as a snuff movie. Yeah. Because you don't show somebody's murder for the sake of entertainment. But nobody's ever said that. And it's very obvious to me when I watched it. <laughs> Here's a guy being killed. And here they are using the footage as part of a sequence of entertainment. The other big unanswered thing is the reason why Bill Wyman left the band in 1991, by the way, but the Stones didn't announce it to the world until two years later. And they tried to make it seem that Bill had had enough of touring and that he wanted to concentrate on family life and uh, he was walking away. Wind back to 1984, when I was with him at the Daily Mirror Rock and Pop Awards at the Lyceum in the Strand, London. And he was there handing over an award to Alexis Corner, the great blues man, to Alexis's widow, Bobby. And there was a ceremony, there was dinner, and then there was kind of dancing. And these two girls get up and start whirling around the floor like dervishes. And Bill is entranced and he's watching these two girls. And sitting the other side of me was Medjur, the singer in Ultravox. And he leant across to me and he said, I think we've just lost him. And this one of these girls is Mandy Smith. The other one is her sister, Nicola. Mm -hmm. And Bill took up with Mandy. He constructed a mixed age friendship group, one of whom was me to conceal the fact that he was having an affair with a child. And people have said to me over the years, you knew about that. How come you never told anybody? And I said, well, yeah, I knew that they were in a relationship. What I didn't know was how young she was. I think we all assumed Mandy was about 18, 19. She was very sophisticated. She was tall. She was made up. She dressed in very adult clothes. But of course, as it turned out, he moved her out of her state school in North London and enrolled her at a fee-paying school in Chelsea, just down the road from his flat on the King's Road. And she was coming home, going to school, coming home in her school uniform. Now, the headmistress of that school knew how old she was. The, the bursar in control of the finances of the school would have known how old she was because her date of birth would have been all over everything. Her yeah. mother certainly knew how old she was. And nobody did anything. And we only discovered Mandy's age when Bill threw a birthday party for her. And it was in the restaurant, Thierry's, underneath his flat. And there was a huge circular birthday cake with one candle in the middle. 
And one of our friends said, go on then, man, tell us, how old are you today? And she said, 15. Oh, my God. And we all did the math. I thought, she's been around for a couple of years. Bill's been seeing her for the past two years. And I said to my friend when we, when we got to discussing this, when I was researching the book, and my mind has gone blank here. And I said to him, Russ Kane, he's called. He's a broadcaster, well-known guy, had a successful career. He, he, he said, we just ran away. It all fell to bits and we disappeared. And I said, why? He said, because we were terrified. We thought we'd done something wrong and that something might happen to us because we knew about this and we didn't tell anybody. Yeah. Then I interviewed for this book, a high court judge. And I said to him, how come Bill Wyman's not inside? How come he never went to prison? Because this is child abuse. A relationship with someone who's underage is child abuse. Yep. He said, well, it's perfectly obvious. You know, Bill himself has said in interviews, I took myself along to the Crown Prosecution Service. I spoke to the local police. Do you want to interview me and everybody said no and no case to answer and the reason is that nobody made a formal complaint against bill not her mother not mandy herself and then somebody else said well yeah but when she was 18 he married her well that doesn't absolve him of a crime mm -mm. that doesn't negate what's happened so the reason is nobody's ever complained formally Bill, now in his 80s, married with three daughters. He had a son from before. He could still go to prison if somebody decided to go to the police and say, actually, this crime was committed here. This needs to be investigated. Yeah. We know he did it. We know how old she was. And it could be for him. I'm not trying to put anybody in prison here. I'm just saying it could still happen. He's not out of the woods and never could be because oh, he did it. Such an, it's such an interesting thing to like try and conceptualize is that this is just lingering out there. Um, God, amazing. I am probably about 30% of the way through the book. I'm okay. really excited. We've got a nice uh, drizzly day here in Denver today. Oh, so dear. my plan is to edit this for a little bit and then go back into it. And I'm really excited about that. And Leslie Ann, thank you so much. Guys, the name of the book is The Stone Age 60 Years of the Rolling Stones. If you like what you've heard here today, this is just a fraction of the information that she has researched and put into this. Um, from what I've read so far, it's amazing. And I wish you the best of luck with it. And thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fascinating talking to you. Big ol' thank you to Leslie for coming on the show and chatting with us about all things Stones. I highly recommend you go and check out this book. The research is amazing, and she really tells a really great story from a unique angle. As always, guys, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 